For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. First of all, big thank you, dear listeners. We had so many brilliant suggestions when we put the call out for the final episode of Series 5, Share the Podcast Mic. The idea being, of course, to feature your stories. It was so hard to choose, I can't tell you. I wish you could have featured everyone, and don't worry, because I'm definitely going to make time to do this again, if you didn't make it. But also, I couldn't even cope with this one, with choosing, so I decided to double the fun. And actually, there's going to be a bonus episode with even more of your stories landing next week. So part one is all about vintage, and that's now. And part two, I'm going to call it How to Change the Fashion World. We'll be hearing some intriguing ideas from students and independent designers. Okay, vintage and secondhand. Why? Well, it was kind of a no-brainer. Interest in thrifting is just always rising. It's in the news more than ever before. I actually just read a, a really interesting story in ID magazine about the TikTok hashtag thrift flip, questioning whether some of the upcycling that is trending is rooted in fat phobia. And we'll touch on this. We talk about the gentrification of charity shops and questions around that that continue to rumble. What else? Well, what's not for debate is that the piles of discarded fashion and textiles keep on growing. We know that there is just a crazy excess. What we can't say so easily is where it ends up. Who pays the price? What that price should be? What's selling? What's not? What should be? All of it. I mean, there's so much to talk about when it comes to secondhand and resale. Actually, uh, I just got a really interesting email from North London Waste Authority. They'd done a survey of millennials and Gen Zs and they'd worked with census-wide. But what they found was they talked to all these people and found out that buying secondhand, swapping and borrowing, they'd all been doing it more in 2020 than the previous year. But we can't say, oh, everyone's shopping secondhand now, can we? Because it's not the full picture. We know that at the same time, the likes of Boohoo have been making a mint selling unsustainable fast fashion online. So a lot to unpack, a lot to think about. I hope these stories will give you some new ideas and inspirations and get you thinking and maybe make you some new friends. Do get in touch with our fantastic guests. We'll be sharing links to all their projects and social media on thewardrobecrisis.com. First up is Ali Dibley, who is a Sydney cider who runs a vintage boutique where everything is to rent. Then Julia Brown, Melbourneian via the UK, a lifelong thrifter and charity shop obsessive. And she's going to talk all about how the scenes evolved since she was a kid back in the 80s and 90s. And last but not least, Lisa Jokinen, a New Yorker by way of Finland who made her name as a street style photographer and is now running an online marketplace for vintage shopping. So good. Let's get to it. I'm here with Ali Dibley, owner of Bell Street Vintage Dress Hire and Custom Bridal. Shout out to your mum, who suggested you when we did the call out, Ali. Welcome to the podcast. Do you want to start by setting the scene for us? Where are we? Well, we're in the fitting room of my store. Um, It's vintage dress hire store in Sydney. It's in Marrickville. And it is full of beautiful dresses and sparkly things, fairy lights. But right now we are in what's basically the cupboard under the stairs that we use as our fitting room. (laughs) Podcasting tips, small spaces with curtains and textiles are great for sound. But outside, there is a world of wonder from all different eras. What sorts of things do you stock? 
Uh, it's mostly from the 50s onwards, but we do have some older stuff. I'm very into the 60s in particular, so that's quite a lot of that. But the main difference between ours and other vintage shops is that it's all special occasion wear. So it's all party dresses, formal dresses, wedding dresses, other, you know, jackets, skirts, things, but mostly dresses because we hire two wedding guests, party guests, people going to work functions. It's all special occasion stuff. How have you been during COVID? Because obviously all physical retail has been hit, but for you it must have been really bad. It has affected me hugely. Yeah. Um, my whole business model requires people to make plans to see their friends. So um, last year we, we did close for a few months and I also make custom wedding dresses. That's the other half of my business. So ironically, that was something I always thought people always get married, right? Um, so I've been still working on those, but mostly we've been selling jewellery and just keep putting out the social media content to <laughs> cheer people up. But people are starting to have weddings again. That's what we've noticed is picking up again. They, the weddings have restrictions. No one can dance. There's guest numbers are restricted, but people are still having weddings and that's what's picked up first. A huge season for us usually is November, December with the work Christmas parties because our biggest customers are people who go to a lot of work functions. They don't want to buy a new dress for everything they go to. So without those work Christmas parties, we, we did really suffer. And normally in the winter, there's a lot of other work events like charity balls, awards nights, all sorts of things, um, conferences where they have a formal night. And so none of that's been happening. So that How's it been during that? It's so hard for small business, right? It was tough. I think I was lucky in that I've always been quite cheap and keep my overheads as low as possible because I've always been quite timid as a business owner. I'm not one of those you got to spend money to make money kind of people. So I think I was lucky in that just the small amount we were able to get through JobKeeper did keep us going. Mm. Okay, let's come back to you said that the thing that marks you out was that you focus on event dressing, but I was sitting here thinking, no, it's that you rent everything. Yes, <laughs> that is the most obvious thing, probably so obvious that I forget it myself. Um, but that is how I think people should approach special occasion things because it's a special occasion and you do want to wear something new to those kind of things. I totally understand the thrill of a new dress and it's not compatible with everything else to do with sustainable fashion. So I believe not even dresses with everything in life, anything that you're not going to use more than say once a month, you shouldn't own. You should be borrowing from friends or renting or just, you know, hiring someone else to do that thing for you. And that includes special occasion dresses, particularly because we know that people like to just wear something new each time. And this way you can wear something new to you and not have any of the guilt. Actually, you're responding to a very human urge for novelty and fun. You know, that magpie shiny thing, but you're doing it, we might say, in a double sustainable way, because not only is it rented, but it's also vintage. Yeah, and giving them a sustainable way to do what they already want to do. And that's why we have our shop is very sparkly on first impression. It's full of lots of sequin dresses, which we know now sequins are not good for the environment. They're not something that we should be producing in masses, partly because they're delicate. The sequins fall off and people think the dress is ruined, whereas we just keep sewing those sequins back on and rent them to the next person. I know that you studied fashion design and you actually did do work in commercial fashion when you graduated, which is about 10 years ago now. But also at one point you were making wedding dresses for friends and party dresses and that grew into a little business. And it was actually seeing how these clothes, even though they'd been made with so much care and they were greatly appreciated, but how they'd just be worn once. And that was what gave you the idea for this place, right? For Bell Street. Do you want to tell us a bit about your relationship with clothes and with their meaning? 
my experience with clothes has always been that it's something that you make or that someone makes for you because that's my personal experience in that my mum always made our clothes and her clothes. I made my own clothes. We lived in Indonesia when I was very little and I think there was just less available that she was familiar with so she she made a lot of our clothes and her own clothes and then I was making my own clothes from a very young age as well. So I very much see clothes as something that someone has put a lot of time and wow. thought into. And that's very unusual. Yeah, that's for me it was never something that. you just got from a shop. <laughs> it was something that was made and usually made for a purpose. Even something casual was kind of like, oh, Ali needs new shorts to wear to this new activity she's doing or something. And um, so for me as a teenager, when I started making dresses, it was always, we're going to Sydney to see this musical, I'm going to make a dress to wear. And then even if I wore that dress many times after, that dress would always be the dress that I wore to that show. Okay, musicals, theatre, things are suddenly making sense for me now because when I walked in, I was drawn to a couple of really dramatic pieces. There's like a skirt with moons on and a kind of taffeta frock coat. And you told me that you bought them at auction from Opera Australia. Yeah, the theatre side is that originally that's where I thought I would take my sewing skills is that I thought I wanted to do theatre costume design and I've sort of become known for strange wedding dresses, which I really love. Okay, we did prepare this. Instead of me asking you more questions, I'm going to ask you to talk us through some favourite pieces in the store. Yes. (laughs) Where shall we begin? I think, well, I mentioned one to you and you sounded very interested, so I think we'll start with Jill. All the dresses have names. Oh, yeah. Yes, you did tell me when we first connected that you name everyone. (laughs) Yeah, so often the name is, whenever possible, the name is named after the original owner, and Jill was the original owner of this dress. And so we're looking at a 1970s Aussie Clark for Radley, moss crepe, long sleeve maxi dress with a Celia Birtwell print, and if this is all gibberish, I'll elaborate further. So Ossie Clark was of that generation of London designers that um, they were at art school together and then they came up in the 60s in that scene where the whole London like retail scene changed and this is a really special interest area of mine. It's where I did my honours research mm, and that kind too. of thing. Yeah, It's so interesting because it's, it's a, just a time where teenagers got sick of dressing like their mothers and someone realised that they had huge buying power and suddenly there were shops just dedicated to young people, specifically, you know, playing loud music to scare the old people away. Absolutely. If you look into the history of the time, it really was the first time that the teenager was invented, that they had their own fashion stores and that young people stopped dressing either like children or miniature old people or miniature adults. As you can imagine, young people like to have fun with their looks, so it was pretty crazy and that's where that whole swinging 60s era comes from. And so also at art school with Ossie Clark was Celia Birtwell, who they became friends and lovers and got married, and she was a textile designer. So they actually collaborated for a few years. It was a relatively short partnership. They got divorced in the 70s, so to have something that is both of those designers working together is really special. It's ivory, and it's got this red, green, blue, a slight print to it. How do you know all this? I know all this because I know Jill. (laughs) We're very lucky that we get a lot of people just wanting their dresses to go to a good home. And so that is how we get all these stories. But this one was actually given to me before I ever even had this shop. I'm from a very small town, so it's a very close-knit community. She's part of that community. And she knew that I had this area of interest in London in the 60s. And her thought was basically, she is the only one in this town who will know how special this dress is. And she, um, yeah, she said, I'd really love you to have this because I know you'll appreciate what it is and how significant it is. And 
I'm always kind of like, are, are you sure you could sell this for a lot of money? But of course it's her wedding dress. She doesn't want to sell it. She wants it to be treasured and it is treasured here. How lovely. Okay, what do we have next? Okay, it's we're still on that same theme. We're still in London in the 60s. This is Lucretia. I have to keep remembering that you can't see these. I have to <laughs> describe them. So it's a black mini dress and it has sheer long sleeves that are gathered at the cuff and it's got a cuff and neckline detail in that gold braid. It's, it's very fancy. And it was bought on the King's Road by a guy whose sister was living in Australia and he actually came to Sydney for her 21st birthday, which would have been a huge deal. And, of course, she was here missing all the missing out on this amazing London fashion scene that was just happening without her. And so he actually bought her this dress as her 21st birthday present and she wore it to her party. Next we have Lynette. Now this is a dress and coat set. It's not a matching, it's all gold, but the dress is gold brocade, like a light gold, and the coat is a really lovely gold satin. And this dress was for Lynette, again, original owner. <laughs> Lynette was working as a chartered accountant on the Gold Coast and a colleague of hers was entering the Miss Gold Coast pageant in, I think, 1963, 64, something like that. And she invited her friend to come and watch this pageant and, of course, Lynette then went into a panic having nothing to wear. What do you wear to a Miss Gold Coast pageant? So her mum rushed in and made her this outfit to wear to the Miss Gold Coast pageant, and I just love that it's gold. How can people identify home-sewn vintage pieces? The lack of label is a very obvious one. Things like the extra things, like the zip, the linings, even the thread, often won't match completely, (laughs) and that's the main thing that you can tell, is um, they've just used whatever they had. There's a lot of hand-finishing in hand-sewn things, like the the little bow that's sewn on would, would be hard to manage if you're producing masses of dresses, but you can do little details like that. This is such a nice conversation. Okay, we've moved forward in time a little bit. I think we're in early 70s now. It's a turquoise, quite a heavy caftan, um, full length, amazing shaped sleeves, and a gold embroidered braid all around the hem, up the centre of it, around the sleeves and down the full length centre of the the coat attached to the braid is these tiny little braid buttons. Is that what you'd call them? They like crocheted buttons sure. maybe. But yeah. Tiny, tiny buttons. Tiny little loops. Close together all the way down. There must be at least a hundred. And tiny loops. Yeah, they're all functional. <laughs> and actually they're all there. And the extra buttons on the side. There's splits in the side. It's quite elaborate. If you it just always reminds me a little bit of the Sergeant Pepper's album, the colours of it. She's even got a last name, this one. It's Maggie McKendrick. I feel like you have to say the full name. The alliteration's too good. So Maggie McKendrick and her husband were cruise ship entertainers. Ah! (laughs) She was a singer and he played the piano and probably a lot of tambourines and piano accordions and all that involved. You have to do everything when you're doing that kind of show. They did piano cruises all around the world. So she would have bought this somewhere on her travels. Love. What's behind you? So I've got two wedding dresses here, mainly because you actually came in and grabbed one of them as soon as you arrived. So these two wedding dresses that I have, both from the 40s, and I think this one might be 1950 or late 40s, they belong to two sisters, Mavis and Rose. And I think Rose was married first. Um, so her dress is a very typical, like, it's almost a bit 30s style, the, um, the really lightweight ivory satin, and it's got gathering around everywhere the sleeves long long sleeves it's very much covered up a huge long train and those diagonal cut edges on a cuff like a triangular point very specific to that era yes 
<laughs> yep, that was a big feature, which came back around the 70s and 80s. And little buttons. But little buttons. Loads of little buttons. It originally had, you know, those wax flowers that they'd often wear in their hair. They were sewn all over the dress, but they'd <laughs> not really survived the years, so we took those off and had to try and get the wax out of the dress. No way. Okay, I have to ask you what everyone always wants to know about vintage. How do you clean it? What if it's got storage marks and stains? What are your tips? Come on, spill. You're not going to do it in one go. And I think that's where a lot of people give up. They say, oh, I tried to wash it and we couldn't get it out. You're not going to do that. You need to be really gentle and you need to wash it lots of times. And sometimes the dress won't survive. What about hanging it in the moonlight and saying a spell? <laughs> I'm serious. Because my wedding dress was um, an Edwardian Goupure lace, like really chunky, amazing Goupure lace. It was revamped, I think, but basically 30s. Maybe the lace came from Edwardian times. I got it in a flea market. It was amazing, but it was really quite yellowed. And this vintage dealer I know, she told me, wait for a full moon, put it on the lawn. And I was like, what do you mean? It's ridiculous. I haven't got a lawn. And even if I did, snails, like, come on. I thought she was just nuts. But I did hang it on the line for a few days as well. And yes, I did. I did put it in the moonlight. <laughs> My guess would be it's the sunlight that worked. So our big secret, and it was also a mad lady who was actually my mother. <laughs> she is our, when we get things that are that bad, she takes them home and does them. She's, she's the restorer. And she's the one with the patience to wash things 10 times and keep an eye on them. And we do, it is, it does involve a lawn. It needs to be a freshly cut, very well-maintained lawn. So what my dad this? plays a big part in Are it as well. Yes. Yeah. It's a thing. People used to do it with um, bed linen. So I think that's maybe where mum got it from was to keep them white. So yeah, lovely lawn, which you're not going to get in Sydney, as you said. My parents have a lawn. It's six hours away, but it's very neat and tidy and they have very clean, dry air. In Sydney, it's a bit too yeah, humid to yeah. really dry things properly. But white things go out on the lawn while wet. And I know you're thinking grass stains. I think the same thing. doesn't happen. <laughs> while wet, out on the lawn in the full sun and you keep it wet all day. Mum's madly rushing in and out of the house, spraying these dresses out on the lawn all day and then wash them again at night, soak them at night, back out in the day. Sometimes it takes a week. So Rose was the satin. Mavis is made of a beautiful, like a cotton lace, and it's just such beautiful fabric. And so Mavis and her husband, who I wish I knew his name, but I don't, he was in the war. They got engaged before he went to World War II. And he was, you know, writing letters back home the whole time, and they're planning their wedding, and she's saying how hard it is. It's getting harder and harder to find fabrics and anything to make a wedding dress. And so he was in India on his way home and he bought this fabric for her and brought it back for her. And I just think he made an excellent choice. It's really lovely. You're really lovely, Ali. Thank you for introducing us to your fabric friends. Welcome, Julia Brand from Style Shifter. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely honoured and very excited to start. Oh, thank you. Do you want to begin by telling us a little bit about what you do? Yes. So um, my day persona, my day job, I work in events and public programming and my passion is style shifter where I give personal styling advice about things you already have in your wardrobe and also create content around that and other things around fashion. And then a new project that I've brought on board, which I'm um, self-funding at the moment, is something called the Melbourne Fashion Hub. So 
basically what it is, it's a free open access program for recent graduates. And basically, we provide an insight into how to start your own fashion label or brand. And then that culminates in a event pop-up space Fantastic. I can't wait to see that. I want to kind of take you back. You've been here for 16 years, but you came from the UK. I know you were a dedicated charity shopper when you were a kid. Perhaps you might begin by talking us through your look then, your approach. What did you wear and how did you put it all together? Yeah, so when I was younger, I I mean, I I think I grew up in a really significant time. Uh, During the 80s um, and 90s, it was all about sort of moulding art, fashion, music all together. And I was really heavily influenced by the music scene. People like David Burns, Prince, Adam and the Ants, Grace Jones. So I was really always into dancing Unpaid at first and then paid, but really always loved dance, performance, creativity. So very highly influenced by those creative performers as well. Growing up, we had the new romantic scene in the UK. So David Bowie and Visage, those type of characters. So that was really where I got my inspiration for dressing. And back in the day, pretty much um, the early days, all we had was CNA and Marks and Spencers. You know, your alternatives were really to go to charity shops. So that's... that's DIY. Yeah, DIY, that's right. So you were like, okay, you're not going to be exactly like, but you wanted to sort of follow the fashion of. And so that was the alternative to to go to charity shops and, uh, yeah, pick up items there. So we talked before and I happen to know that you were, as you were a dancer, you were a, a fan of the Pineapple Studios. Look, you talked about wearing fishnets and 16-hole docks. I got a pair of Pineapple Studio shorts on sale because they weren't cheap either. So I got it on sale. But yeah, so it's an iconic dance studio. And I think, you know, growing up because we had fame as well. So there was all that influence as well. So it was very iconic. While my friends were dressing in kappa and that casual look, I, as I said, fishnet tights and my dockers. I just had a very unique take on fashion. My friend and I, we were going on a night out in London and I just wanted to have something different. So we decided we wanted to go for a David Burns. So we both decided that we were going to go to the charity shop, op shop. So I bought an oversized grey suit and she bought one too. It was like a sort of like a charcoaly colour. And I had a beautiful sort of like a tarnished silver looking leopard brooch. So I wore that and she had a hair like her hair was like yours, Claire. So, and she had it all slick back, sort of wet look with her oversized suit too. And we went clubbing it. So pre-fast fashion, when we weren't so kind of weighed down by the tyranny of trends, if you wanted to be creative, I think there was more scope. Talk to us about what getting dressed meant to you as a kid growing up outside of London. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Slough. <laughs> Which is? Industrial, it's an industrial town. Yeah, so big industrial town outside. Working class? Uh, yeah, working class, industrial town. Um, what what did there. your parents do? My dad worked for Mars Factory, which was the big chocolate factory. And my mum had various jobs. Um, she actually worked at our school and she also worked for Hovis Bread, but in a, like a retail oh, yeah. spot. So used to make bread sticks and little mini loaves and things like that. Yeah, we didn't come from an obvious fashion background, but I must say that both my mum and my dad 
dress very well. So my dad used to have two-tone suits made for him to go out dancing in. Oh, he loved it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then my mum made her own clothes. So I think she made her own um, wedding outfit and she's always been well-dressed. So I think my early influence is about how you put yourself out in the world definitely came from my parents and especially my mum. So my first that that's was ingrained into me and also she was not a wasteful person she wasn't frugal necessarily but she was never wasteful so I grew up with dressing and being well dressed was important and also being mindful about your consumption from an early age was important so as far as my my influences of dressing I always just wanted to be different and unique and obviously with the shops that we had available back in the 80s you just you couldn't do it. I think there was such a massive chasm between people who are on a lower income or working class and then middle upper class that if you did want to be unique and stand out, that your options were to be more resourceful and go to op shops and thrift shops. I was just thinking when you said that about something that I wrote in the first book I wrote about sustainability, about how hierarchical and tiered fashion access used to be. So it was like, and this came from a British perspective because I grew up there, kind of really serious money and elite access at the top where you could go to a designer. Mm. But then it was about the kind of middle class, slightly kind of conservative high street, but still expensive and, should we just say boring? Boring. Mm. Um, Boring middle class, well-presented clothes. And then not much at the bottom. So if you were creative, you really did need, and I think this was actually fantastic, as a student or as a kid, you needed to be creative. You needed to make your own stuff, DIY, plunder the flea markets for old stuff, put things together. And it was very original and it was a lot less dictated by corporate land, shall we say. Yeah, I completely agree. And the thing is as well is you didn't feel like, oh, I'm being hard done by. Everybody who you knew is in the same position and it's just what you did. And you enjoyed that creation. You enjoyed that creative process and creating something individual. Quite competitive. Yeah. Yeah, I had a I had a friend called um, Diane Oze, who is still a friend of mine, and she again same sort of background as me, and she was incredibly stylish, and I think I must say probably till today she she probably still is, but it was competitive because she had such an incredible style and she put things together so well. How would you describe your style today? I definitely describe it as more playful, and I must say. Having sort of like the option of going to to op shops has really opened up what I have access to and I can be more playful. So as an example, I recently acquired a beautiful leather jacket. It's like a buttery finish, purple leather jacket, which was um, I think a bespoke jacket that was made in Western Australia. And it has actual emu legs on the jacket it's absolutely beautiful so like embroidered uh, appliqued like appliqued I think and I think it must have been a custom because I'm absolutely fascinated by great design and when I bought it I looked up the label and found out a bit of the history of the garment so like I say it was a custom made I think piece from an Australian designer called Smirnoff I think and when I looked at their range they didn't have anything similar so somebody would actually commission the piece which makes it a lot more special right we had a conversation before we pressed record and you said to me that you wanted to stand out you don't want to look like everybody else 
That's right. Exactly right. I had a, a section in my life where I didn't really represent myself and having access to op shops has actually given me the opportunity to express myself more. Wow, like a return. Like, So when you were young, you were very creative as you're dressing and then did you sort of leave it a little bit and then come back to it? Yeah, I think to be honest with you, I've got to be completely honest here. I did get sucked into that whole aspirational dressing thing where I was dressing out of type. You know, I was... I was feeling, yes, I'm not good enough, you know, on a psychological, like deep, you know, subconscious or unconscious level. And I did feed into that and was ending up with clothes that weren't me. And then I refound myself. I went to um, an exhibition called uh, Slow Fashion, Fast Fashion, where it spoke about, you know, how what it takes to produce a pair of jeans and even a T-shirt. And I think it woke me up to a lot of things. And I really fell in love with the idea of thrifting and found myself again, pretty much. But that's really interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. It just changed your view on fashion. I think I did have that moment where I did get sucked in to the thought of I need to have to be. And then that that was a pivotal moment when I went to that exhibition to go, wow, I don't really want to be part of this. And I, you know, from going back into um, op shops, I found, yeah, this is I can have my unique voice again. So, yeah, it was a revelation. When we were preparing for this interview, you talked about, and these are your words, how we moved from inspiration to aspiration. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so there was such a big gap between sort of like haves and have nots. So you could only be inspired. You couldn't be part of, you know, that dream. So when I was growing up and I was inspired by David Burns and David Bowie and Prince, I took the time to create and you didn't think anything of it. You know, you you took that time if you wanted something unique and beautiful to create it yourself. And I think we've moved into a period now where there's so, our lives are so, we're trying to cram so much in that we're not leaving space for that creativity anymore. So it's all about Kim Kardashian has, has this look. You can buy her look in the shops or you can buy her perfume here and we we've sort of haven't left space to be creative anymore you can actually buy a kardashian look on fashion nova please don't within hours of her wearing it so it's Mm. actually gone from we always talk about fast fashion oh new stars can be in store within a week actually no new stars can be online within hours yeah yeah it's just crazy It made me think about the currency of time when you were speaking then so if you didn't have money you had time but That's now right. you got neither. <laughs> That's it. That's There's some it. kind of flip. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, look, we still have the same amount of time as we ever did, but it's where we're spending that time and where we're putting the importance of, you know, and the value now, you know, and I think it's that whole thing of we're being asked to speed up so that we don't have those, we don't feel that we've got those choices to be creative and value ourselves, right? it's been drilled into us on a psychological level consume 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 and also you are not good enough anything you have is not good enough you're not looking young enough the technology you have is not up to date enough the clothes that you wear you're just not good enough you're too old you're too this you're too that and if you consume and if you buy and if you aspire to be then 
and you're still not better. I mean, it's it's like a vicious circle. So we, we get caught up in this. And yeah, so we come to this aspirational phase that we want to be like Kim Kardashian and we want to be like this or that person or we want to be one of the wags, you know? It's interesting because we've always, as humans, been driven by status, I believe. Mm. But certainly in the last couple of decades, consumerism has ramped up in this idea that everything is for sale and that you have to pay to access everything. Style's not for sale, is it? I mean, it's something that you can think about. Um, I always think about this. It comes from Diana Vreeland, who would say the most stylish thing. I read this in a book she wrote, uh, one of the most stylish. And she was like the most snobby Vogue woman there is. But she thought the most stylish things included the waves and a Jaguar, Mm. as in a big cat. So it's not a Jaguar luxury car. It's not for sale. Styles out there for the taking and you can make it up and you can sew it and DIY it and you can spend peanuts and look more stylish than the person who spent thousands. That's it. And I think that's what we really need to get back to. But it takes a a grand effort because obviously um, capitalism doesn't want us to feel that way. You know, our governments don't want us to feel that way. The big corporations don't want us to feel that way. It's all about consumption. But I think anything that COVID has done has given, regardless of which generation you are, pause for thought and go, know what? It's obvious that this isn't working and we need to be more community minded as well. All right. Let me ask you, when you bought that suit, that grey suit when you were 18 to went mm. to the nightclub, how much do you think it cost if you can try to remember? Guess. It would probably, the whole thing, and it was really good quality, would have probably cost about, I'd say, £5. Right. The other day I was in an Australian charity shop and there was this quite cute, very nicely shaped Kate Spade, not really my label, polka dot dress. And it looked my size and I thought I'll try it on. And it was flattering. It wasn't really me, but it was a bit of whimsy. And I thought, oh, I could talk about it. I looked at the price tag. It was $120. Mm. Now, I didn't need that dress. I've got lots of dresses. But it was a pretty good dress if you're going to a job interview, if you needed to look smart and it was a flattering shape and not, I don't know, I'm sure that lots of people would have found it a useful thing. $120. If you are, for example, that woman who's looking to get a job after losing it during COVID, you haven't got $120 to buy this dress. It's cheaper to go to insert fast fashion store here you yeah. can get four for that price yeah as i was saying that the monolo blonics um that were one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine dollars so, so hang on a minute what what are these shoes what they were monolo blonics men's shoes and they were on a op shop site for one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine dollars wow yeah that's not really a thrifted price they probably cost that new yeah so i mean listen you know, we understand that, you know, op shops do have to make money. But are we saying to people who don't have that money, you can't, you're not allowed to have something of quality? Julia, the reason that your suggestion to join this episode stood out was your something you said on the Instagram post where you talked about being concerned over the gentrification of op shops. And obviously mm. that conversation has been kind of reaching a bit of a buzz, hasn't it? People yeah. are noticing that prices are rising and also questioning the role of charity shops and asking, are we discriminating? Are we gatekeeping? Are we locking people out of access to affordable clothes, which is something that obviously we don't want to see? This is becoming quite political. What What's your take on it? So for me, as somebody who visits op shops, I would class myself as the treasure hunter. I go there for something unique and different. 
But a lot of people go there because it may be one of their only options. And I think what happens... Which, when you were a kid, it was yours. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think pricing out people in this middle area that we were talking about, say your Kate Spade dress, means that what we're doing is pushing people towards fast fashion. And then we shame them. And then we say, oh, well, fast fashion is terrible and you should be more ethical. And, you know, when I say we, I'm talking about the media and also the sustainability community to some extent, because while we do need to point out the kind of problems associated with fast fashion exploitation, we also have to remember that not everybody is on a level playing field from the consumer side either. Yeah. And sometimes it's not just fast fashion, it's just accessible fashion. So, you know, fast fashion isn't always cheap. It's not well made, but it's not always cheap. But I think we're, we're also talking about the cheaply made accessible um, fashion that we have in suburban areas, you know, urban sprawl. So that that's, accounts for a lot of it as well. And we're also pushing people towards that. And then when we're doing that, that means that unfortunately that goes back into the op shop system. So it's a vicious circle because nobody wants to buy that. This discussion is really difficult because there's so many different points of view and different perspectives mm. that you need to kind of grapple with because... Yes, there's accessibility, which is so important. Yes, there's snobbery and locking people out and Mm. access. But there's also the other side, which is charity shops are completely swamped with stuff there's I've never seen so much stuff and there's more and more of it every you know everywhere we look we talked before we recorded about um, an event that you'd been to in Melbourne where you were sort of privy to some of the behind the scenes stuff around what's actually donated in inverted commas to charity shops I mean let's talk about the volume and the quality Yeah, so uh, it was an event run by an organisation called Ten Fingers and it's called Fast Fashion, uh, H-U-N. And basically what they do is they run workshops where they are donated the bales of sort of things that aren't in good enough quality to sell in op shops and they create, they get people to come in and create fashion from this, what they call fashion waste or textile waste. And I, so I was privy to see what actually people donate and I was absolutely horrified. Things that were really, really heavily stained, um, shredded, just really dirty, like mouldy, just abs- like absolutely terrible. And I think this is one of the things when we're talking about sort of like that balance of pricing accessibility and I think, you know, where some of the costings may come through because, you know, we've, they've got volunteers that have to sort the amount of stuff I can only imagine that um, shops have to sort through in order to get to what we actually see in the shops is, yeah, is remarkable. So, you know, the easy reaction is to be outraged by how ridiculously expensive clothes have become in charity shops and how unfair it is and how they're not thinking about accessibility and not thinking about people who can't afford to spend but want to have access to good clothes. But there is another side of this, which is that charity shops are increasingly being sort of left with these crazy bills to dispose of what's essentially rubbish that Mm. we, the general public, are donating in adverted commas. Now, over Christmas, there was a story in the ABC about Vinnie's shops in Kingston, Tasmania. Kingston is a town on the outskirts of Hobart. And if you're listening internationally, Vinnie's is one of Australia's biggest charity shop chains. It's run by St. Vincent de Paul, so a big one. But Kingston is a small place. And, you know, this is like a small suburban 
op shop. Seven tonnes of rubbish was dumped in three days outside of this shop over the Christmas holidays. Some of this grotesque pile of donations, grotesque was my words, not the ABCs, contained rotting fruit and vegetables and lawn clippings. And then they talked to the CEO of Vinnie's Tasmania who said that they'd spent $60,000 last year disposing of these unwanted goods. Yeah, absolutely horrendous. I think the thing is, is they're victim of their own success in a way because obviously donating to charity shops has become more of a norm. So there was an audience where it would be, I'd say, mostly older ladies, deceased estates, that sort of thing. And now, again, the audience is changing so that people who are buying cheaply made and fast fashion are donating so that the donating audience is changing. And also that people are seeing it, unfortunately, as a way of disposing of their other rubbish as well. And I remember when I was in the UK and Mary Portis was looking to sort of like reinvent the op shop and she was... Queen of the shops, Mary Portis. Yes. (laughs) She was saying about how they were trying to get away from this um, notion of people just leaving stuff at the op shop and giving people bags to actually consider what they were going to, you know, donate on. So it is, unfortunately... Guiding them, like trying yeah. to guide them. This is what yeah. we can sell. This is what we yeah, want. Yeah, this is what we want. So she came up with that concept because obviously, unfortunately, um, this isn't a new thing, but it's become more prevalent as more people are deciding to donate. And they are just literally getting rid of their old rubbish. So it is a massive issue. We need to have a shift in mindset, which is going to be very, very difficult about consumerism as a whole this whole thing that we have to consume, consume, consume. And I think sometimes people get a bit guilt fatigued. I think that, that's my best terminology about saying you're do you as consumers, we're constantly doing the wrong thing. We can't do right for doing wrong. So I think the messaging needs to change around that first. Obviously, you do need to think about the maker and your impact on the earth. That's very important. But I think we need to get back to buy less, wear more. I mean, that's, you know, that's the main thing. Buy less, wear more is a nice phrase. I think actually one of the things that we always say is how difficult it is and how could we possibly reimagine a new system? And I get it because it's an awful lot of work and it feels like everything's against us for those of us who are kind of championing that. However, Mm -hmm. let's remember that actually it's only been 20, 30 years since we've had fast fashion and really only 10 years since we've had it on steroids like we have it now. And actually this idea of consuming excessively being universally accepted is new we didn't used Mm. to do it so within a few years I think we could shift it back what do you reckon yeah I do and I must say not that the emphasis is on the young because it most certainly isn't it is on all of us but I really do feel that the younger generations are really leading the charge in this area and we really need to take on that mantle so those who can should and we need to lead the charge in that thinking of one the psychology of you are enough develop your own personal style and you need to spend less and like I say wear more you know really be mindful about your choices and I think if we can start there with the self then that's a long way of changing everything. Now we're joined from New York by Lisa Jokinen, who fell in love with vintage fashion growing up in Finland, made her name as a street style photographer, and is the founder of a vintage search app called Gem. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Claire. It's such a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk all about the kind of move of vintage into the digital space. But first, I just wanted to mention that we're recording this 
in New York Fashion Week, except that there's kind of no New York Fashion Week. Yeah, it feels like there isn't uh, any Fashion Week going on at all now. Although, of course, there are shows online and things happening. But uh, for me, because usually I would be out and about from dawn to dusk, trying to, you know, hit find some cool street style photos for my blog, NYC looks. Uh, but uh, now I'm not going anywhere. Do you miss yeah, it? And, uh, yeah, of course. I mix like hanging outside the shows and taking photos and also trying to figure out where are like more underground, smaller events, which are totally outside the fashion week calendar. I think those are always the best ones. We certainly miss the real life connections. We miss the smiles. Missing, I miss seeing people's full faces because we are all still wearing masks. I thought you were going to say I miss seeing their full outfit because we're missing the shoes because everybody's on, a, <laughs> everyone's just waist up in earrings, right? Yeah. On the screen. That's, yeah, that's true. But you know, I still go out almost every day with my camera. I do a little walk and most of the days I do spot some fun looks and I take photos and I, I can see the shoes too. And actually you're documenting important times and that's one of the roles of photography and street style photography it's not just who looks interesting it's contextual isn't it it's like you're seeing now history as it happens so the mask wearing the kind of distance the social distance you're seeing it all through your camera mm, exactly and you could say that that's more real street style than the one that is happening during the fashion weeks I've been taking photos for more than 15 years now and it just gives me so much uh, inspiration and joy, like meeting new people and seeing new kinds of outfits that I cannot stop. And actually, Lisa, do you talk to everybody that you photograph? And how do you, I've always wanted to know this, how do you approach people? Do you have to ask permission? Do you take a picture for, without telling them, <laughs> sort of capturing them without them realising? Are you allowed to do that? I never take secret photos because I want to know the people that I photograph. So what I do, I always approach them and I ask that, excuse me, can I take a photo of you? And then I usually compliment their outfit so they understand that that's the reason why I want to take the photo. And then I tell that it's for my street style page and most of the people are super flattered and they say yes. But then also do they tell you the stories behind what they're wearing? Yes, yeah. Then I always ask them, that. okay, what are you wearing and why are you wearing what you're wearing now? And then I always have the question, uh, what inspires your style currently? And Sometimes those answers are just so fun. <laughs> you never know what, you know, what people are inspired by. It's like, it's fun. <laughs> so is anyone getting dressed up anymore? I think they are. Because for people like us, because if clothes are important for us, I think it's like air, the air that we breathe. You can't live without it. At some point, you just start missing, like dressing up and beautiful clothes, just changing outfits, like creating different looks that you, you just want to do it. Either you do it just for yourself or you share it on Instagram. I think we can still connect through clothes, uh, although we can't meet in real life anytime soon. And what I've enjoyed doing this past year is joining all kinds of live events that uh, vintage stores have been organizing. For example, there is a vintage fair called A Current Affair here in the States. I think it's one of the best, really. And because they couldn't organize their live events anymore, they started during virtual 
fairs. And that means that every store that is attending, they get 30 minutes during which time they can show their new pieces and you can buy directly via DMs. And it's just so fun just watching the shows and seeing like familiar names popping in the comment section. It feels really like being in the same space, although we are not, <laughs> we are very far from each other. You moved to New York when? Six years ago? Uh, actually, four years ago. Four. I'm, yes, from San Francisco, where we lived uh, for two and a half years with my husband. So I'm very interested in how the city's vintage culture and vintage retail has evolved over that time. Also evolved over COVID, but talk to us a little bit about how you've seen it change. Actually, we have built an app that lists all the New York vintage and thrift stores. And I can tell you that there are 268 vintage and thrift stores in New York. What I've noticed lately is um, a move towards specialization, like quite many of the new brand new stores here in New York are specialized in exciting ways. For example, there is one store in East Village that only sells black vintage clothes and really? Yeah, Only special- black? <laughs> yes. From all different eras? Yes. Wow. All black. Yeah. And the most exciting store that I know is its new one is called Tired Drift. It's run by two young women here in Williamsburg and they are specialized in 90s and early 2000 vintage and secondhand clothing. And it's been a huge success. Whenever I pass by, there is a line of young kids lining up to the store. I always see these stores pop up in Sydney and in London too, where streetwear is now deemed vintage. And so there are these stores that sell sneakers from the 2000s or only t-shirts from the 2000s, right? Yeah, it's crazy. But you know, it's 20 years ago. So technically it's vintage if it's 20 years old. So what about how COVID has impacted the bricks and mortar retail? We know that it's terribly tough in independent retail out there now. Are you seeing favourite vintage stores in New York close and shutter, perhaps for good? Are you hearing that from your community and from your friends who dress in vintage and through gem? Yes, sadly, I've seen many of my favourite stores closed here and moved online only. And I miss them dearly because, you know, what is a city without brick and mortar stores and small businesses? It's a very boring city. But then, surprisingly, for every 10 stores that have closed, I've seen like 10 new ones born. Which really? It's a kind of New York miracle. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So there is a lot of new things happening. And there are also a lot of new kind of vintage fairs and events, a lot of pop-ups. Almost every weekend, there is something fun happening. Also, vintage stores collaborating together. There is an Evoke Vintage is inviting smaller sellers to sell at the, inside their space. They Which one? It, uh, it's called Evoke Vintage. Where is it? They have three locations, uh, Williamsburg and Greenpoint in Brooklyn. So it's almost like you can't keep this down, right? So even during a crisis and even when physical retail is shuttered, there's creativity in how vintage sellers are getting together and being creative in the way that they speak to their customers, right? They're doing it through pop-ups, they're doing it online. It's like you can't keep it down, which I love. Yes, and you can see that there is a huge demand for vintage and there is a huge demand for connection and community. So people still want to do things together, although it would be on Instagram or, you know, online. Okay, you mentioned Gem and also the scale of the sellers that you have on there. It's an app and it's searchable. 
Explain how it works and how it evolved. Yeah, it's actually a super simple idea, but it's also revolutionary, I think. So it brings all online vintage into one search. And how it works is that you type in what you are looking for, and we show you relevant results from all over the internet. For example, what might one type in? You might want to type in 70s Patchwork jacket or 90s Nike sweater or your favorite color or your favorite designer or even like a detail if you're looking for like huge shoulders or puff sleeves or Peter Pan collars and then we show what's available. And so it's free? It's free to use, yes, and it's an app, but also a website, so you can also use it on your laptop, and it's available all over the world. And yeah, free to use and also uh, free to join if you are a store owner. Our business model is based on affiliate programs that some of the bigger marketplaces like Etsy and eBay have, and that's why uh, at the moment we are not charging anything from smaller Shopify stores if they want to join us. And we have hundreds of independent stores in GEM and altogether over 30 million secondhand and vintage clothing items. Everybody knows that retail in all forms is shifting online. But what can you tell us about the resale market in particular? I mean, we've seen, for example, the likes of Vestier, the likes of The Real Real explode in recent times and certainly rival Matches and net on the designer end. I think thread up is predicting that resale is going to be bigger than fast fashion by 2029. And I think that's kind of crazy to think about because it's it's going to happen so soon and so fast. In the next five years, a secondhand market will hit $64 billion. So that's like, it's huge. Also, you and I were talking the other day about these big, iconic, famous brands stepping into the resale market and doing these kinds of collaborations. What, who's doing what? So, uh, yeah, big retail chains are selling their own secondhand now, and it's happening more and more. Uh, we can mention, for example, Marimekko from Finland. They are going to launch their own secondhand online store later this year. Of course, Patagonia, they've been selling their old secondhand for, for quite some time already. Levi's launched their own secondhand online store. This is so interesting to me because this is the next step towards a circular economy where brands take responsibility for their inadverted commas waste. Instead of saying, once it's gone, I don't care about it. They're saying, actually, we could see the value in it, profit from it, but also take it back, take responsibility from it. Instead of, what do you think? Because what we'd seen before then was brands having take back programs where they're essentially getting all this stuff that is no longer wanted and then either flogging it so that it ends up in the global south or repurposing it into rags or recycling it, but not selling it, not revamping it and actually taking responsibility for the next owner. I think it's interesting, right? I think it shows that the brands are taking resale seriously. They can see that, aha, uh-huh, customers are interested in this and it's, it's going to be a big thing. So we need to be involved. We need to do something in this space. Yeah, they're also thinking 64 billion bucks, right? (laughs) Yeah, they want to have their share, of course. And of course, uh, what's also interesting about this is that you can't sell your items secondhand if they are not good enough of quality. So that means that the brands need to, you know, think about what kind of garments they are making and make sure that they really last for the second round or third or fourth or so on. 
Let's talk about how it started for you. So I know that you've always loved vintage clothes and you started out doing photography before you moved to the US. But you told me the other day you wanted to be an academic and historian. Yeah, I studied art history and cultural history. This happened in mid-90s. So it's kind of a long time ago. Many things have changed. And I thought I always thought at that time that I would work at the museum in Finland which I did for a brief period of time, but then I quickly realized that it was kind of dusty and kind of dead even. And the clothes were displayed in just like in glass cabinets and there was not a connection to the person who was once wearing the clothes or to the life that we live now. But when I start, discovered street style photography, then I, I discovered also the connection between the person and the clothes and some you know, everything became alive for me again. I love this idea of vintage being history, but living history. So I imagine you as a young girl, young woman in Helsinki. Well, well, yeah, Helsinki. No? Yes. Where? I studied in Turku. It's another city in Finland. Right. But imagine you fascinated by the clothes from the past and the stories potentially that are held within these clothes. But then they're not really living, are they, when they're behind the glass or mostly actually in museums, they're in a drawer, aren't they? You don't actually mm. see, most of it's not on display. I've seen the yeah. archives. <laughs> so yeah, it's not... In, it's, in drawers it's not, or very dark rooms. Right. Yeah. It's not breathing and living. Mm, not. And also we, in Finland, we don't have like a big uh, fashion history. Or, there was very little that I could really work with, so... Ah, oh, because you said to me, we're a young country. Yes, only 100 years old or so. And also we were relatively poor until very recently. So that's why we don't have like a long fashion history or, or huge fashion archives. Was there a Finnish royal family? Never. Ah, so if you think about the kind of most iconic French fashion museums or I don't know, what's in the V&A, there's all that courtly dressing stuff from hundreds of years because they had the cash to buy all the fabulous fabrics right yeah no we didn't have that well sweden we used to be part of sweden and sweden had their royalties and also when finland developed uh, our like textile industry it was a lot of uh, was produced for the soviet union in 70s and 80s so it was very practical clothing nothing really fancy and when the Soviet Union collapsed, we lost our textile and industry, basically. When I was a student and when I worked at museums, those like work clothes, they were not maybe considered museum worthy. You know, they were too ordinary. It had to be something more fancy to be inside a museum. So what do you wear and what intrigues you and how do you approach vintage? How, what do I wear? Uh, <laughs> I wear very comfortable clothes nowadays. I wear a lot of colors and believe it or not, I repeat my outfits like so much because actually now I only have one suitcase full of clothes because we live in a temporary apartment. Most of my clothes are in the storage unit. So. Oh my God, like just like a museum. You never see it. (laughs) Yes. Dead, dead with no connection to my real life. But what, tell me about your connection to vintage and what, obviously you talked about other people wearing fantastic clothes and how you discuss those clothes with them. But what's your thread with vintage and your own wardrobe? Well, I always loved vintage and uh, ever since I was a little kid, I loved wearing my mother's old clothes and I guess they uh, brought me some kind of comfort. 
because they were already like soft, you know, worn, worn in, so to say. And for some reason, I always really enjoyed wearing like retro, like old, just older, like prints and cuts and styles. And I loved like all hand-me-downs that I could get. I have an older sister and also some other relatives that would always, you know, give us old clothes and I just enjoyed them. And also when I was growing up, it was really hard to find any nice clothes in the stores. So if I wanted to have something new, my mom would make the clothes for me. And a big event for me was when my grandmother uh, opened her clothing stash to me. I remember her telling to me that I she wouldn't let me see old clothes that she had been collecting like for decades, basically, until I was old enough to really appreciate them. I think I was maybe 14 years old when she finally let me, you know, take out everything. I still have some of them. There is one really fun uh, 70s style leather jacket in like pea green color, like a yellowish green. It was so important piece of clothing to me that I, at some point, I even wrote, I have written my own name and my telephone number, like landline telephone number, inside of the jacket in case I would lose it. We haven't talked about sustainability. Is that important to you, Lisa? It is, yeah. It's always been a driving factor in my life. And I think because um, the clothes that we already own, they are, of course, the most sustainable ones. So that's why we should all uh, have secondhand as our first option. Okay, so, but, (laughs) devil's advocate, I want to end on this idea that you mentioned before of ThreadUp saying that resale is going to eclipse fast fashion. Does that mean that we're actually going to be almost treating it like fast fashion? And how do you think we can guard against, I think this is under-discussed, this idea that someone's told us that it's guilt-free, so therefore we can just get all the stuff and it's okay because it's secondhand. I think this is such an important point. I think whatever we are shopping, whether it's like food or clothes, whether it's secondhand or new, we we should always be mindful, like really think, do I really need this? What I'm going to do with this thing? Am I going to wear it? Am I going to love it? Am I able to take really good care of this thing? Is it Whether it's like a piece of furniture or a piece of clothing, the same thing. And... Uh, yeah, just be mindful. And then uh, there has been a lot of discussion about gentrification of thrifting and like articles about whether like this booming re- resale thing is going to push all the secondhand prices up so that people who actually need those items for economical reasons are left out. But I think it's a good thing to keep in mind that uh, it might be a problem. And I know that especially some things that are really hard to find, uh, vintage and secondhand, like plus-sized items, for example. So I think we should not buy them if we don't really need them, especially do not buy something that is plus-sized and then, you know, make something out of it so that it's not plus-sized anymore. You can buy it, but please keep it plus-sized because someone is going to really need it at some point. Yeah, I mean, we've been, I've been reading lots of stories around this thrift flipping idea, which to me, on first glance, I think fantastic upcycling, let's all do that. But actually, it just comes back to this, we have to be mindful and thoughtful. I don't think that anyone upcycling anything that seems to be redundant to them thinks about whether or not it's needed by others. And I guess it just comes back to, we can't let this 
secondhand world replace fast fashion in the same way, can we? We have to actually bring with it new values. Exactly, exactly. I think it all comes back to the connection. We need to be connected to the people who once designed our clothes, who made them, and also to the people who wore them before us, and also to the people that who are going to wear the clothes after us. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis patron community and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles and special access. Because I love you